finally, brothers, rejoice. Aim for restoration. Comfort one another. Agree with one another. Live in peace. And the God of love and peace will be with you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the saints greet you. And the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. And with those words under the inspiration of the Spirit, the Apostle Paul finishes this lengthy epistle. Second of two we have in our word of God that was 2 Corinthians 13, verses 11 through 14. We here at the McGregor Baptist Church began our journey through 2 Corinthians the Sunday after Easter. We've been in 2 Corinthians since April 16th. This morning we complete our trip through, uh, through this second biblical letter, third total letter that we know of. There's the severe letter that God the Spirit did not preserve for us. This journey through the interaction with a church that was marked by greed, factionalism, sexual immorality, displaced worship, bizarre understandings of, of the ministry of the Spirit, and a host of other misunderstandings about the, the life to come. Pretty much the catalog of what can be gotten wrong. <laughs> Paul's relationship with the church at Corinth continues for a third visit. He's anticipated it. He's told us about it. As recently as chapter 13, verse 1, he said, The third time I am coming. And the Word of God tells us a little bit about that third visit that is, that is still future at the end of 2 Corinthians, but is included in the timeline and narrative of the book of Acts. I'll uh, take a look at that this week on our Beyond the Notes podcast for those who want to see sort of the rest of the story of the great apostles' relationship with the church at Corinth. And as one would rather expect in a fallen world, it's a mixed bag. Some things going forward go very well, and some things going forward go, well, less well. We'll have that look. But now we come to this closing paragraph. In many ways, it's, it's very typically uh, Paul-ish. If you go through all of the, the, the letters of Paul, which comprise a, a, a big percentage of our New Testament, You'll, you'll see similar closings. And it's, uh, some have some characteristics and some have others. One characteristic that's interestingly missing from this one that is fairly common to Paul is he often closes with a, with a catalog of personal greetings, people's names. Say hi to them, say hi to them, warn them, affirm them, those kinds of things. There's, there's none of that at all at the end of 2 Corinthians, and that's a little unusual. And most, most scholars, and I would agree with this, Yes, it's hard, it's, hard to, it's hard to supply the motive for something that's missing, right? Why didn't he do that? Well, dangerous business trying to get certain about that, but one reasonable speculation is he knows that as he finishes this letter, he's packing his bags to travel. 
to Corinth. And so such personal conversations as he uh, needs to have, he's going to have them face to face in the, in the months ahead as he once more visits the church at Corinth. But in this final greeting, as he sort of puts a bow on his written communication to the church at Corinth, there are, there are some concluding matters that he addresses. Uh, and, and I want us this morning to, uh, to take a look through them. Roman numeral one, there is a, a foundational matter. Right out of the gate. He says, finally, brothers, rejoice. Rejoice. It's a, it's a fairly frequent commandment in the New Testament, a fairly frequent description of the characteristic of believers. Believers are, believers are a people who rejoice. Believers ought to be a people who rejoice. And if we're going to obey that commandment to, to live in a context of joy, to rejoice, we need to make certain again that we are, we are grounded in a good definition of what joy is so we can understand what rejoicing is. It's one of those terms that can be, can be a bit hijacked into, into meaning something a good bit shallower than what it actually means. Uh, often, we would equate joy and thus rejoicing with, with sort of an expressed giddiness. You know, I'm, I'm really, really joyful today. And certainly it is the case that, that joy should prompt, can prompt, often will prompt expressions of great happiness and elation. But those aren't synonyms. Joyfulness and being elated aren't the same thing. Very, very rarely are we commanded to or encouraged even in to a particular state of emotion. The Lord who created you knows that your emotions will tend to run all over the place. Joy is not an emotional state because your emotions are going to ebb and flow all over the place. Your emotional state can be affected by whether or not you stubbed your toe in the last five seconds. Joy can affect your emotional state and that's not a bad thing, but joy is not defined as your emotional state. Joy is that settled confidence that comes from knowing that everything that was eternally wrong has been made eternally right because of Jesus. That's joy. That this enormous sin debt that had driven an insurmountable chasm between the God who created us and us, that we were, we were buried in a sin debt that we could not resolve. That God has undertaken by sending his son, Jesus Christ, into the world, who lived, died, rose again, and is coming again. But in his death has satisfied the sin debt for all who will turn from their sin and trust Jesus Christ by faith. And knowing that, child of God, is joy. And living in light of that is rejoicing. If that makes you happy, praise God. It makes me happy too. 
I have been told that it gets worse the older I get, and like you, I'm getting older, I have developed a resting grumpy face. <laughs> I'm only very rarely actually angry. I'm not even characteristically grumpy. At least I don't think I am. But oh, the joy of the Lord. Because I know what I owed him. At least pretty good handle on it. Thus I know what he has paid for me. And I am more confident in him than I am this platform I'm standing on. That that which was going to sentence me to wrath forever has been satisfied in Christ. And I am now the object of his love forever. Ooh, I rejoice. For all the tangled upness of the church at Corinth, for all the things that that church tended to get wrong, Paul says, you will resolve much of that if you as a body of Christ will learn to rejoice. Roman 2, there are some relational matters he addresses with this, this series of kind of rapid-fire encouragements. They're on your outline as A through F, all straight out of the text. Letter A, aim for restoration. That speaks to the, to the testimony of the church. Restoration here is, is, is pretty much what it, what it says in English. The idea of, of making right that which has not been right. It speaks to the testimony of the church. The story of the church at Corinth could use some restoration work. There are some things present in the church that ought to be absent, some things that have been absent in the church that ought to be present. The church had been affected by everything from gross sexual immorality to factionalism to denial of the resurrection. These things needed to be made right. Sometimes by, by learning and embracing new things. Often also by repenting and being done with old things. Have a testimony before the watching world. And by the way, not only have that testimony, but communicate that testimony. I... Uh, I, I saw yet again in the last two weeks another, another, uh, yet another study has been done on the, the business of how, how a given local body of Christ reaches people that have not yet been reached. And one more time, the statistic has landed in the mid to upper 80s that what God uses in the lives of lost people to invite them both to the gospel and to the fellowship of a particular body of Christ is you telling your story. It's not, it's not signs out on Colonial. It's not a, 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 a well-developed online presence, which praise God we have the team that helps us do that. But none of that has any remote statistical impact compared to you telling the story of what God has done in your life and in the life of your body of Christ. Have and communicate a testimony. Aim for restoration to make that right. Second, 
comfort one another. Comfort's another one of those words that sort of gets, gets blurry in, in, in modern informal usage. Better, better is the idea encourage as long as you understand encouragement in the, in the older, more formal sense. Give courage to. Encourage. Spur one another on. Encourage one another. Comfort one another here does not mean, oh, poor baby, let me get you a softer pillow. No. Is there a place for that? Of course there is a place for that. But here... It's drive one another with encouragement. If, if, if I can be sort of, sort of the, the RHV, the, the Russell Howard version, <laughs> what I would say is seek to drive the other people around you into a deeper love for Jesus. The, the blast radius of your life the, the, the sphere of stewardship you have in people and relationships. Be committed, you be committed that people around you will be spurred to love Jesus more because they've known you. That's what it means by comfort one another. It speaks to the, the covenantal relationships in the church. For us as a church, we actually have a, a, a church covenant that's actually, a, as, as the age of churches goes, a fairly recent thing. It was in 2017 that this congregation took upon itself our existing church covenant. And if you've not read it in a while, we read it out loud together at, at member meetings. And if you've not personally opened it up, it's on our webpage, it's easy to find. If you've not looked again at our church covenant, this is what we say we will do and be for one another as encouraging people together in the body of Christ. Comfort one another, the covenant of the church. Letter C, agree with one another. That speaks to the confession of the church. You and I, as we have said in recent messages, you and I come from such different life stories, different geography, different ethnicity, different circumstances, different everything, different eras. The, the, the pace of historical cultural change is happening faster than it ever has before. I was joking with my with my uh, my wife. We were riding up to my mom and dad's for uh, a Thanksgiving celebration on Friday. And if I take my date of birth and work backward versus forward, my date of birth is closer to World War One than it is to today. I remember when World War One was a long time ago. We're not going to agree on all kinds of things. There are going to be all kinds of things. You know, we can, and we can have fun with some of those disagreements. You know, Coke versus Pepsi. If you're wondering, it's Coke. Um, and, and Coke Zero in particular. I'm certain that there are churches out there where Pepsi people are welcome. All right, I am kidding. Do not even write the email. Give me a break a little bit. Um, But we've got to agree on some things. You say, well, we just stand on the Bible. The Jehovah's Witness in your neighborhood would make that exact same statement, wouldn't they? That's why it's important 
to have an agreed upon, for us, an agreed upon confessional framework. Um, let, me, let me give you just a little primer on how to deal with, with theological, uh, sort of hierarchy of, of theological understandings. Just, this is just quick. This is a little bit of a rabbit, but it's probably worth chasing here. We deal with it all the time in conversation. We deal with it all the time in our prospective member class. Let me deal with it here for a minute. Some matters are what we would call primary matters. Primary matters of doctrine and belief. These are things where if you don't agree, you are not a Christian. You cannot be a, a Christian if you do not hold the deity of Christ, the reality of the Trinity. You cannot be a Christian. If you want a quick place to look for some primary matters of the faith, look up the Nicene Creed of, of 325. Early Christian believers gathering together, answering questions, okay, what is it to be a Christian versus something else? Mormons, for example, reject the Nicene Creed. Mormonism is not Christianity. The Jehovah's Witnesses reject the Nicene Creed. Uh, the Watchtower Society does not embrace Christianity. Primary matters, the deity of Christ, the virgin birth. Secondary matters are matters where, well, we, 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 we think we understand the Bible clearly here. We think we're right. But there is, there is room in the kingdom of God for disagreement. A given church's confession of faith will define for that church what are secondary matters. Secondary matters are, if we don't agree on these, we're going to have a hard time doing church together. For us, the Baptist confession of faith defines our church's confession of faith. The secondary matters where we also agree. I have, I have many dear friends whom I know to be believers who for example, attend our, our neighboring church, New Hope Prez. It's a great church. It's a gospel-upholding church. It's a Bible-believing church. I, we can't do church together because they hold to infant baptism. We hold to believer's baptism. And by the way, we think we're right. I believe I can make that scriptural case. We're not at odds with one another, but there's no point in kidding ourselves. We disagree. And we're, any given church is only going to do that one way or the other. So secondary matters define, okay, can we do church together? That matters. And that's the boundary around this body of Christ, the areas where we have to agree. If you don't hold the Baptist faith and message, early joking notwithstanding, you're going to have a very difficult time. You would not be able to become a member of our church today without affirming the Baptist faith and message because we have to agree. Now, tertiary matters, that third tier. I've always said, for example, regarding the end times, that if you put five Baptists in a room, you'll get seven different positions on the end times. <laughs> and there are a catalog of other issues that do not rise to that level of secondary border around a given body of Christ. They, they still matter. They can be discussed. They can be agreed about. They can be gently disagreed about. But they're, they're there. They're biblically. And all of that in a framework and a foundation of God's word. But it's very, very important to know if we're talking about theology, if you want to come to me and have a conversation about the, the end times and the future of Israel, that's a tertiary matter. And we might end up disagreeing. You want to come to me and say, well, I don't know whether Jesus Christ is God. Then what's at issue here is whether or not you're going to go to heaven when you die. 
all right? But in those secondary and higher matters, we agree with one another, and we must, and we should. That is the confession of the church. Letter D, live in peace. That's the unity of the church. That is to be pursued and preserved, that we, that we get along with one another. I, I once sat as a teenager in a church business meeting that went till near midnight and came to near blows over the upholstery color in an auditorium renovation. Somebody should have put a fire hose on the whole congregation and sent everybody home. It was crazy. They were ready to send unity out the window over an upholstery color. We're not going to do that. Does that mean we always have to agree on everything? Well, let me show you a little experiment. Uh, we, I, I, have, I have been blessed recently to pass the, the mile marker of, of mine and Gail's 40th anniversary. Gail and I have been married now in our 41st year. Yay. And some of y'all have me beat. Yep. Praise God. You know what? The better you know me, the more you would applaud that. The, uh, she is a remarkable, remarkable woman. But right now in this room, some of y'all got us beat. How many of y'all are right now in the room, you've been married longer than 40 years? All right, there it is. You under, amen. You understand something about unity. You got something figured out. Let me ask you something. Does that mean the two of you always agree on everything? <laughs> of course not. Peace and unity don't mean that we're always in some sort of lockstep. It just means that we are us and that is to be defended. Amen. We might have to have a little hashing out of some stuff. We may have to work to decide some things together, but we are we. I know, Mom, nominative case on both sides of the verb of being. Gotcha. We are we. And that is to be protected. That's what it is to live at peace. And then greet one another with a holy kiss, the love of the church. Now, there is a, there is a cultural dynamic here. Um, hope, hopeful single people, this is, this, is not, this is not a matchmaking encouragement. <laughs> There are cultures in the world today, I have been blessed to, uh, to have done a very gracious share of traveling in Southern Mediterranean and Middle Eastern cultures down the years. And I have friends in Greece, Turkey, Israel, Italy, that when I get off the plane in those places and they meet me at the airport, they will embrace me and they will kiss me on both cheeks, men and women. Because in those cultures, that greeting still persists. The idea is that there should be a layer of affection, genuine regard for one another that sits, that sits on that foundation of love. Love also, remember, is not a fickle emotional state. Love should not be defined in emotional terms, though it will express itself in emotional terms. Love is to be defined as that unconditional, self-sacrificial commitment to the well-being of another. But atop that should sit, upon that should rest, a genuine regard for one another. Um, most of you will be going to 11 o'clock life groups. I hope that you are. 
And I told the earlier congregation, I hope when you go into life group today, I hope whoever talks first up front, I hope it takes them a moment to settle you down. I hope that there's so much hubbub in the room, so much, hey, I hadn't seen you in a few days, how are you, in the room. So much genuine regard and genuine affection for one another in the room. We, we can hardly do that in a room this size. But I pray that this morning, even as you walked into this room, from time to time we'll get asked, why don't we, why don't we do that big stand up and hug everybody in greeting time in the worship service? We do, we just moved it. It's before uh, um, 9.30. And we pray that it's going on. If you walked in here with your head down and your hands in your pocket, I just noticed this is an unfriendly church. <laughs> Open up a bit. You might find that it's not. May we be a people who are genuinely fond of each other. That's what is the spirit of greet one another with a holy kiss. And then letter F, all the saints greet you. That's, I know I've skipped a little in the text, but I wanted to get to that imperative. That reminder, it's not an imperative, but that affirmation, that speaks to the context of the church. Remember, Paul is writing to Corinth from Philippi. He had visited Corinth from Ephesus. He birthed the church at Corinth after being in Athens. Paul is blessed to represent the interconnectivity of all these like-minded and like-hearted churches. For us, praise God, we participate as a church in a denomination. Praise God, we participate in a community that has a number of Jesus-loving, gospel-preaching, Bible-believing churches. Not all of them would denominationally align with us. Many of them would. But, but there are some terrific churches, so much so that if I start listing them, you'll think that I have something against some church because I left it off my list. So I'm not going to do that. But, but churches that love Jesus and preach the gospel accurately are, are, we are blessed as a community. Are there loony churches everywhere you look? There are always going to be loony churches. It's a fallen world. But if you're here and paying attention, I pray by now God has tuned your loony radar that you would not fall victim to a church that's heretical, even if that church is local. But we do not exist in a vacuum. There are other great churches and we can know that fellowship. Roman numeral three, some providential matters. The promise, letter A, the God of love and peace will be with you. The God of love and peace will be with you. It speaks to both his character and his companionship. Will be with you, he's always with us, he's omnipresent but his character, the God of love. Let's talk about that for a moment. The God of love and peace. Now, without using something to look it up, just from your hip, if you don't mind, take a guess. How often in Scripture, we know that love is central to the character of God. How often in Scripture is he called the God of love? Okay, once here. It's the only time in all of Scripture that title for him is used. He's called the God of love here. And, and I think I, 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 I see why. The, uh, the church at Corinth was as immersed in the pagan pantheonic worship 
of, of, of Greek culture as much as any church that Paul evangelized. And the temple of Aphrodite, the goddess of eroticism, played a very common, a very prominent role in the life of Corinth. We've shared with you before that to Corinthianize was to hang out with prostitutes in the ancient world. That's what the church of Corinth was famous for, this goddess of love who does not exist, right? And her, her ritual prostitution worship was a horrific problem in the city of Corinth. And so Paul reminds the Corinthians, it's not some love goddess, it's the God of love that stands with us. The God of love and peace. Not only peace with one another, but peace with the living God. Oh, this morning, if you are outside of Christ, we, we round the corner out of thanksgiving where you would have no one to thank to Christmas where we who know Jesus celebrate the coming of a Savior whom you don't yet know but whom you desperately need. Oh, today, harden not your heart against the love of the Lord Jesus Christ. You need peace with God and the Prince of Peace is the only means to that peace. Come to Jesus today if you never have. And may those of us who know him live in peace with him and peace with one another. The, the character and then the companionship, he will be with you. Now I know in the Holy Spirit knows that he's omnipresent. He's, well, he's always with me. He's everywhere. Well, if you, if you mean in the sense of the actual literal presence of God, you're absolutely right. But this is speaking of the, the cultivated awareness and companionship and fellowship of knowing that God, the Holy Spirit, is with you. There's a qualitative, relational presence of the God of peace that is promised to those who follow faithfully. And then finally, letter B, under Roman three, the Trinitarian benediction. Every now and then, some shallow-minded critic will have to point out, well, the word Trinity doesn't occur in the Bible. And you're right. But the idea is all over the Bible. God is one, there is one God. We know that to be true. God the Son is God, God the Spirit is God, God the Father is God. There is one God. That is the doctrine of the Trinity. And while I readily agree that there is a mystery, there is, you can't, well the Trinity's like this, you just became a heretic. Because the Trinity is not like anything. All metaphors and analogies will break down very, very quickly. The Trinity is like the character and nature of God. And here, it is not as much commanded, it is assumed in this final sentence of the letter as the grace of God the Son, number one on your outline, and the love of God the Father, number two on your outline, and the fellowship of the Spirit, number three on your outline, both in theological terms and in personal terms. Because we know the grace of God the Son, we are a people of grace. Because we are a people of grace, we are a gracious people. Nothing more puzzling than an ungracious, unkind, mean Christian. 
We are the grace people. How can we not be the gracious people? The love of God the Father, we love him, he loves us. His love defines us. And so again, we transmit that. We embody that. We live out that unconditional, self-sacrificial commitment to one another's well-being. And the fellowship of God the Spirit. We are possessed, literally spirit-possessed by the living God in the person of God the Spirit. That fellowship with him impacts, in fact, empowers and defines our relationship with one another. And if those things were to be true in a church as fouled up as the documented church at Corinth, then we ought aspire, we ought embody, we ought express these things to be true here in the church that gathers at 3750 Colonial Boulevard.